Welcome to the podcast, Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path, and I'm your host, Mike Allen. One-room schoolhouses, charming little old buildings, aren't they, those little red schoolhouses? Well, they may have been charming to look at, but they were difficult to attend. Think about carrying firewood eight miles from your house one way to the schoolhouse so you'd have enough heat to survive during the winter. No outhouses, no drinking water wells, and a whole lot more. A truly fascinating story about how education evolved from the colonial days here in Connecticut. And nobody knows this story better than the woman who actually wrote the book on one-room schoolhouses. Melinda Elliott is author of Connecticut Schoolhouses Through Time, and she's also director of the Southbury Historical Society and is here to share unbelievable stories with us. And now, the daunting challenges of attending those quaint one-room schoolhouses. I'm willing to bet that everybody listening to this podcast right now has seen at least a one-room schoolhouse from the outside. Now, if you're lucky like me, not only have you seen it from the inside too, but maybe you got a briefing from the former teacher, we used to call him a school marm, in that building. Yeah, when I was in elementary school, that's exactly what happened because my class got to go to the last Little Red Schoolhouse, which had just closed in our town, and we actually met the teacher who taught there. It's amazing the conditions that they faced, and I, I doubt that many modern-day children could contend with all the challenges that they faced back in the 17 and 1800s, and I put myself in that category. So why do we go from the one-room school formula, blending multiple grades together, to the system we have today, and when did that happen? Well, our guest today, Melinda Elliott, knows more about this topic than anybody I've ever met. She's an expert on one-room schoolhouses, not only here in Connecticut, but all throughout New England. She's traveled extensively, and she's seen many of them firsthand. And she wrote a wonderful book about Connecticut's collection of remaining one-room schoolhouses. And she has loads of not only historical, but modern-day photos of all these iconic buildings. She's documented remaining one-room schoolhouses from New Canaan to Stonington, Canterbury, Barkhamsted, East Lyme, Newtown, Norfolk, Monroe, Danbury, Enfield, Bethany, and dozens of others throughout the states. Well, as interesting as the buildings themselves are, it's also the way that the concept of education evolved. And she has that story, too, from back in the 1700s when the Congregational Church ran the curriculum to the more modern advent of the local school board. Melinda, your book is outstanding with great old and new updated photos of these one-room schoolhouses throughout Connecticut. What is so interesting to me, you've managed to put it into sort of four distinct what I would call phases. So you start in the 1700s, then you go to district schools in the early 1800s, then the sort of mid-1800s, things changed a lot, and then obviously consolidation in the 1900s. So We'll go through each one, and, and as you go through it, you find out school buildings, the teachers themselves, students, what they had to do, what tools they had, who administered, all those things changed. So I guess the first question I want to ask you is, in 1701, Yale University opened. The idea that higher education was needed was established, and you had a lot of affluent, wealthy you know, citizens who were attending Yale. And you had an agrarian society where moms and dads are teaching their kids how to farm and all the things you had to do around the farm and they needed them to do chores. And I'm sure there are a lot of parents who were, hey, come on, why do we need education? Why do we need to read and write? Somebody had to draw the line somewhere and force this to sort of start 
How did that happen? Well, actually, from the time the Puritans came to America, it was very important to have education. They wanted every individual to be part of the society, an important member of the society. And in order to do that, they needed to know how to read and they needed to know how to cipher mathematics. Let's jump right into it. The 1700s, we start building these one-room schoolhouses. They're just so much fun to, to see the ones that have been preserved and to drive around and try and imagine this. I'm hoping with all your experience, you're going to bring this to life through your great words to tell us really what it was like going to one of these one-room schoolhouses back in the, let's start in the 1700s. 1700s was a very simple time. The buildings could be about the size of a garage or even smaller as a shed. They would not be like we have now where there's insulation. You just had your framing and maybe a floor and Hopefully at that point, you would have a fireplace. The fireplaces were actually quite large, like they would be in the houses. However, they became very dangerous for students because kids would get burned. And so many times the schoolhouses would burn down. In 1800, they switched to stoves, wood-burning stoves. So that was safer. Now, did the students have to split the firewood and everything? I mean, where did they get the firewood? The firewood was provided by the parents. That was part of their responsibility to go to school. If you did not bring the wood in as you were expected to, uh, you would be the one that would be sitting the furthest away from the fire. So if you were good and brought your firewood in, you'd get a, a place of honor. That's hilarious. What about things? Did they have wells with, uh, with water? Or how did they you know, drink water through the day? Most of the time, they didn't have their own well. Hopefully, there's somebody nearby that had a nice well that they would share the water. There were some that, places that were built near creeks. And of course, at that time, they would use the local creek or river water. Each school would have a pail, of course. The boys would usually be the ones to go down and get the water. And they all shared a common ladle to drink out of. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And what about, I mean, we're going to have to jump into this at some point, but uh, I was amazed to find out how few of these schoolhouses actually had an outhouse. Oh, yeah, huh? That was not an important item at the time. The outhouses were not considered part of school, honestly. It was more often than not, the girls would go over beyond the bushes and the boys would go into the woods. Well, that uh, settles that, I suppose. The other question is, and you already pointed out, no insulation do I have this right that the earliest schools had a four-month season basically over the winter when the, when the farms were closed from like November to March? So that must have been pretty cold. You're right. It was very cold in the early part of the 1700s. Schools were only required to be open for six weeks out of the year. It's when you got later that you would be, they would be open for four months. How much education took place at home, you know, reading the Bible and whatnot? Were the parents teaching these kids or did they solely rely on the, uh, the teachers? In the early, earliest times with younger kids, they would be taught by the parents. If the parents were not capable of doing it, they had what was called a dame school. So an older lady or an aunt or somebody who was not as busy as other people would have the younger children come in and learn the alphabet and the basics of, of math. Now, as you and I have discussed before, one time in my life, I got to go inside a one-room schoolhouse when I was a kid. 
and hear from the last teacher who taught there at that particular schoolhouse. And I, I was looking around seeing what tools they had, you know, ink wells and, you know, and desks. But that's not how it started, right? The desks were kind of built into the walls. There weren't individual desks at first. Could you explain kind of what they had to work with? Yeah, the, the desks were actually a slab of wood that were connected to the outside walls of the room and with benches in front of the desks. So the students would be turned with their back away from the teachers. And the height was one height. So the younger kids had trouble get, being able to write. And then the older, actually the older girls, had trouble turning around to see the teacher. Why did they have trouble turning around? Well, they had trouble turning around because they had their skirts. And you had to be careful not to reveal your ankle when you turned around. Ah, of course. That, that makes sense. Now, here's the other part that, you know, a one-room schoolhouse had grades one through eight. You know, in modern educational theory, of course, that would be, you know, ridiculous. But that's what the best you had, right? That was very common for, what, 200 years or more. Yes. You had one teacher who would teach all of the students from whatever grades were there. You might have kids that were first and second grade, but not a third grader. You had children that were older that were able to help the teacher teach the younger children. All the subjects were taught by the teacher. Wow. Now, just like in some of the early religious denominations that weren't as established as, say, the Congregational Church, they would have their pastors roam from town to town and, and, and spread the word that way. Teachers did that too early on, if I understand it right. In some places, that's very true. There were uh, uh, roving teachers that would go for, for one town for about six weeks and go on to the next town for another six weeks. And do I have it right, if I read your book right and I'm remembering this correctly, that when they first started building these one-room schoolhouses, the decision, the cutoff point when they decided, okay, we got to build one, is when there were 50 families that had kids. Is that about right? That's exactly it. That was from the Code of 1650. And that's what it said, is that when you had 50 families, then you had to employ a teacher to teach the kids to read and write. And not to get too technical, but again, when I went into that one-room schoolhouse, there were ink wells and, and whatnot. Pencils, if you go back in time, were actually invented in the 1500s, but not widely used until the 1800s. But I saw a lot of things that looked like individual chalkboards and some chalk. What kind of tools did these kids have to learn how to write? So you're talking about a slate board, um, which is made of stone, of course, slate. And then the pencils were usually made of soapstone, which were called the slate pencils. That was their main, basically, tablet where you could write and erase what you've written. That was used mostly for temporary items. If you were actually writing for something to be permanent, you would use paper and pen, a quill pen. The other question I had is, in terms of the earliest schools, my understanding in Connecticut, I'll limit it to that, was that the Congregational Church in the early days really drove the curriculum and kind of administered things and said, thou shall be taught this and that. Uh, is, is that the way it was? It was. Most of the first schools in the 1650, Code of 1650, you had to have a teacher, but you didn't have to have a schoolhouse. When you had 70 families, you had to have a schoolhouse that was usually built next to the church under the control of the church. Of course, that's why you see so many of them that way now. 
Let's move into the next period, which starts in 1800 and goes up until 1835, thereabouts, when when the trains started to come in. So we're, we're still talking about horse and buggy getting back and forth to school. And and by the way, I mean, students had to, I think it was in this period when they finally said, you don't have to walk more than two miles. I mean, that's kind of a hindrance right there. <laughs> Yes, when you had a schoolhouse next to the church, sometimes it would be as far as eight miles for a child to go to school. And of course, not all parents would like that idea. No, I can imagine. 1790, what uh, happened then? 1790, the state of Connecticut sold off part of their land that was called the Western Reserve. All that money was put into a fund that would go to provide schoolhouses. Each town got a certain amount of money and schoolhouses were built fairly nice at that time. However, since the state paid for the schoolhouses, the families did not decide that it was important for them to keep up the schoolhouses. Also by then, they had this survey done, I guess, around 1830, that showed only about a third of the schoolhouses out of 103 that they looked at were even in decent shape, and only three outhouses among all of them. Yeah, that was one surveyor that, you know, I don't know what all the surveyors came up with, but that was a very important point. Well, and there's another point to this, I think, you know, when you talk about modern education, and again, I'll limit it to Connecticut, when you talk about the affluent towns, uh, many of them in, you know, Fairfield and Litchfield and South uh, New Haven counties, who have a lot of money, tend to throw more money into education. Then you get these somewhat poorer urban areas that don't have as much money. When you look at this, do you see sort of a trend line that maybe started back then from people who sort of you know, felt there was more importance to education or something? Maybe I'm not stating that right, but you know what I mean? I think that a schoolhouse and the community was a microcosm of what was happening at that place. So if you had a area that really did not have a lot of money and did not hold education as important, they would put schoolhouse on any piece of land that was unusable for any other purpose. Whereas other places might put big, beautiful buildings for their educational purposes. Understood. Moving ahead, Henry Barnard seems to have been an interesting guy back in the 1850s. Now we're up to, and I found this number staggering, 1,600 schoolhouses around the state of Connecticut by the mid-1800s. And I guess this guy, Henry Barnard, who was an educator, wrote some scathing report and it led to some changes. Is that correct? (laughs) Yeah, he, he said that the schoolhouses were little more than barns. There was uh, very poor lighting and no ventilation in the buildings. Plus, the other thing that he was very upset about was the fact that there was only one door for the boys and and girls to go into and that the sensitivities of the young ladies could not be guaranteed. (laughs) Love that wording. So Barnard also sort of drove the introduction of maps and globes into the schoolroom. Is that correct? It is. He, he thought it was very important for the children to have the tools they needed to actually learn. The other thing he was very careful about was standardizing textbooks. Before this point, whatever textbooks or whatever books the family had, it's what was used in the classroom. So kids used to bring books from home to, for the educational purposes? Yes, they did. 
And so library books were also important to have a, a good selection of different type of books in the classroom. Let's jump ahead to the 1909 Consolidation Act, because I guess this kind of shook things up in terms of Connecticut education and, and sort of brought in the more modern era. What did that uh, act call for? Yeah, sadly, the state of Connecticut decided that children would work and learn better with children their own age. These one-room schoolhouses, of course, as we talked about, had children from five-year-old to 16-year-olds, and the state decided that it was more important to have education that was directed for the different ages. The towns had to come up with a plan to shut down the one-room schoolhouses and to build a consolidated school that would have the different grade levels. And with that came a change in the administration of the system, right? So it went from little districts that each had their own one little you know, schoolhouse to a town board of education with a superintendent. I mean, this was a big change. It was a gigantic change. It was because it was the first time that people outside of your immediate neighborhood had control of the education. My understanding is that the very last class held in a one-room schoolhouse was in Western Connecticut in the Gaylordsville section of New Milford, and I think the year was 1967. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. It was the last one to be closed in the state. It ran for 200 years, that one little schoolhouse. It's open on weekends and when the Historical Society has it open. Very nice little schoolhouse. Unbelievable. You have been to more one-room schoolhouses. I'm willing to lay my last $5 bet on this than anybody on the planet. I just wonder when you look at them, I mean, I know what I feel like when I look at these. What goes through your, your heart and your soul when you see these beautiful old buildings? Well, I think it's really important that the schoolhouses are preserved. It's a definite part of our history that was part of the education. It was part of the life of the district. That's where people would meet. It would not only just be for school. It would often be for any type of town meeting or birthday parties, whatever. It was integral to the town. I don't know. I get this feeling that this is a part of history that we can definitely touch and relate to. Well, that wraps up this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path. I've placed some extra photos of one-room schoolhouses on my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. if you want to follow the page and see some visual examples of what we've been talking about. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Melinda Elliott, author of Connecticut Schoolhouses Through Time. She's also director of the Southbury Historical Society. Well, if you like the show, please tell your family and friends and business colleagues about it and have them follow the podcast as well. Amazing Tales from Off and On, Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. This is Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy.